A poem is a small machine made of words. William Carlos Williams. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, exploring the poetry scene of Central Canada and beyond with Amanda Earl and A.M. Kozak. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning to everyone listening. My name is A.M. Kozak and I'm here with... Oh, Amanda Earl, right? I'm supposed to talk now. It's been so long since we've done this together <laughs> that I've forgotten how it works. How to talk, yes. yes you've forgotten how to talk. Yeah. Amanda is almost like a special guest of mine today in a way because I'm going to be picking her brain about a topic that she claims she is not an expert on, um, no. but I would say she is at least knowledgeable on, and that is visual poetry. Um, any Anything to say about you as a visual poetry person, Amanda, before I start hounding you with uh, my carefully crafted questions? <laughs> uh, thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to be here in my own apartment and, uh, <laughs> as a guest. Uh, I've given myself water and treated yeah, myself very well. Yeah, I should make you well. some coffee, eh? There you go. That's right. Maybe That's at the right. break I'll make some coffee for right. us as a role reversal. <laughs> there we go. No, it's good. I, I, I just, I mean, the questions are really good and, and we have a lot of books on the table because I have a, I've assembled quite a collection over the years. Um, I've been interested in visual poetry for more, well, since about maybe 2005 or so. So um, I didn't, I don't think I knew it existed until about that time. So, uh, all right. So I guess that's, that's it. And then we'll get into the nitty gritty. Yes, we shall. That is what right, we do. Right now. Well, why don't we start off with um, defining visual poetry? Because some of the listeners might not really understand what that means and does does anyone really fully understand what that means i don't know let's let's get into it uh, so i have a quote i have a couple of quotations here uh from carl kempton's uh, visual poetry a brief history of ancestral roots in modern traditions which i'm sure we'll link to i'll do my best first quote is a visual poem may, def may be defined simply as a poem composed or designed to be consciously seen the modern visual poem is generally composed with disassembled language material this stuff of language includes word, text, note, code, petroglyph, letter, phonic character, type, cipher, symbol, pictograph, sentence, number, hieroglyph, rhythm, iconograph, grammar, cluster, stroke, ideogram, density, pattern, diagram, logogram, accent, line, color, measure, etc. That sounds like a poem itself. <laughs> it could be. Today's minimalist visual poet, or the post-World War II term concrete poet, generally composes with fissioned language material, I like the sound of that, yeah. to create new and free particles and or sonic patterns, clusters, densities, and or textures. The visual poet composes with these freed particles and generally weds or fuses them to one or more art forms. By doing so, by crossing art form boundaries, the visual poet composes in a field of multimedia or border blur or intermedia. So that's the first quote. It is a little okay. long, but I did I did like a lot of sort There's of the visual you're getting from from yeah. from it. And the other quote I have is about I it's guess from the same book. Right? It's from the same book, but it's also about sort of like defining a genre. Uh, Carl Kempton writes, I personally have no problem with an individual making such a demand for purity of form of his or her own work, or perhaps even a group forming a collective by consensus to pursue such a venture. 
However, when such a demand or call has as its deepest desire the dominance and control of an entire field of poetic expression, it is not an aesthetic movement, but an anti-egalitarian foolishness and arrogance at best and worst not poetry, rather egomania doomed to poetic and artistic failure. So I wanted to open with those two yeah, quotations fun. because one is like setting up how to define a visual poetry yeah. and the other one is sort of arguing against um, definitions Pitch that are exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so what do you think of the first quotation as an introduction to what visual poetry or vispo is amanda and what would you add or qualify to this definition to help the listener understand what we're talking about I think it's a pretty uh, comprehensive definition, and it also opens the way up for a lot of different types of things that some people may or may not think is visual poetry. So, for instance, a collage mm -hmm. or um, mail art, altered books, things like mail that. Art. What's mail art? Mail art is an interesting thing where people uh, send... Uh, art through the mail like they do collaborative groups and it can include it can include things like collages or different things but uh, or or visual poems or scenic writing does that or, have to be snail mail yeah yes it has to be snail mail can't be email um i mean the when i've heard mail art that's how i've heard it used but yeah. why i mean why, why couldn't it be yeah. i mean i've never that's a good question if, for anyone <laughs> listening can mail art be email art? And why not? I mean, think about. I mean, people do. I think the idea is you mail it in these envelopes. I'm currently part of a project where that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a it's a place in the UK. A, a woman in the UK who has this thing called attic zine. Attic as in the room up above mm -hmm. the upstairs. Not one who's addicted to something. Yeah. Although maybe you're addicted to uh, attics or male poetry. That's right. So yeah. So so uh, and she invited twenty people to contribute pieces that were handmade and signed, and they could be art or visual poetry or collage or whatever but they had to all it's part of this thing called um the international book of color and this time around it's purple so they had okay. to ha have to do with the color purple in some way okay. or another and so the idea of i think mail art has to do a lot with the handmade stuff like altered books has to do with handmade okay. things and some some visual poetry can be handmade or it can be digital but like he i think that's a pretty comprehensive definition i especially like the idea of of uh, where he talks about um fusing it to another yeah. art form yeah. like and the too. concept of border blur which i think is really interesting i've seen that word used a few times in relation to yeah. um bp nickel yeah yeah, yeah what does that what does it mean well it's, what it sounds like it's, border, yeah like board, if instead words? of instead of, it's basically crossing it's it's blurring a boundary or a border so yeah. blurring an edge so for in, if if for instance we're taught that poetry has to be xyz okay. and someone says but i'm going to make it now 72 well, that's crossing a, that's blurring over okay. and it's like when you when you have to i think to me anyway like there's probably maybe there's an official definition somewhere i don't i don't know but it's 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 when you're taking something and pushing it beyond the standard limits so that people have trouble recognizing it as that particular type of thing so what do you think about the need to define genres such as vispo more generally do you think it's constricting or enabling i think it can be both i think if it's used as a way to gatekeep and then it's you know as a way to keep stuff out then it's it's a problem but on the other hand it can be quite enabling because i mean how many i mean there's two different schools of thought for me or probably way more than that but if you're if you've never heard about visual poetry before you maybe you might and it happens some people start maybe doodling letters on the piece of paper and it becomes something that is a school that actually exists they could look up and they discover that sort of by themselves first so as a kind yeah. of and and that's interesting but on the other hand if you have access if you can google visual poetry and find all this information 
I mean, that's also helpful too, right? Okay. So, I mean, if it helps to, to educate and inspire, yes. If it if it stops people from doing things, then no, it's it's not. Right. So it's it's both as usual. I'm a Libra. What can I say? I see both sides of things. <laughs> yeah, to me, it, it has it has uh, it has both those things. I mean, one of the problems is when you when you if if someone calls something visual poetry sometimes that means it's excluded from some of the more traditional means of publication and and also mm. things like awards and grants and things like that so that becomes a gatekeeping thing right. and then that's a problem see, yeah. but on the other hand if people who are on juries don't know anything about that then how are they supposed to yeah to yeah figure out if it's any good yeah so I, I think, but I mean, just like any kind of thing, any kind of terminology, it helps to have the terminology to be informed about things and to right. be able to communicate with others who are, and and find others who are doing similar right, work. Right, to give some context or yeah. a, a foothold into yeah. understanding um, things that are related. That's it. Like and that. some and sometimes too, once you know what something is, then you can push the, until you know, like, it's like with when we say, well, you know, um, you have to know grammar in order to push yeah. its limits. Well, you, you, it's good to, I don't think it's a bad idea to learn about it. Plus it's inspiring. But the nice thing about, well, well I guess we're going to get into that when we talk about criticism. So I'll, 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 st I'll stop. But I mean, it, there's a different attitude in the visual poetry community, uh, community about, about criticism and critique and things like that, that will, you know, have. Well, I'm interested to hear all about it. There you go. It was a, <laughs> that was a teaser. All right. So before we get into that, let's, yeah. uh, let's backtrack to the his history a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I found, you sent me some links and I found reading about the history of it quite interesting because mm -hmm. it can trace, it traces its roots, visual poetry to lots of different yeah. spheres, right? So I'm going to read a qu another quotation about, uh, and then uh, ask you a question. Visual poets have refused to develop a critical context which relates either to the history of their own practice, the history of literature, or the history of the visual arts. Consequently, a creative practice which is genuinely interdisciplinary and is highly relevant to the discussion of the use of language in contemporary visual art is not brought into the central discussion, and as a result, not properly supported by our cultural institutions, which goes to your yeah, uh, last point, actually. Exactly. No artist, whether literary, visual, or interdisciplinary, likes to be defined and categorized, but without definitions and categories, there can be no discussion, and no discussion means there is no mention, no support, and limited potential for having an impact. I admit the deck is already stacked, but I'd like to see visual poetry in the game. It would benefit everyone who explores language in a creative context. So that's from Michael Winkler, uh, for, and quoted in Cold Front magazine. Um, so my question for you, Amanda, is do you agree with Michael Winkler when he says visual poets have refused to develop a critical context which relates either to the history of their own practice, the history of literature, or the history of the visual arts? Well, I, I think it's a highly non-judgmental practice, right? It's, it's read, Since reading a visual poem is difficult, how can it be critiqued? Hmm. And since there are so many different variations, how can it be regulated or studied in some kind of uniform way? And actually, I have a quote, and it's over in the last Vispo that's closer to this the other big, side of this, the table. The big one? The big brick there. Okay. And I like to read... Uh, oh, I'm going to pass it to you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay. Oh, thank you. Reaching it's, over the big table. Yeah, we took the leaf out, so it's not quite as big Not as big table. as normal. This is from uh, Crag Hill, and this is from uh, the last Vispo anthology, Visual Poetry, 1998 to 2008. And if you want to... It's published by Fantagraphic. And if you want a good overview of, the, of visual poetry and you want to see a lot of examples and read some essays, I highly recommend this book. He's got an essay at the beginning called Why Write Visual Poetry When So Few Readers Read It. Who's he? 
this is Crag Hill, Crag Hill, sorry, one of the editors. Okay, so the poems register on the retina. I've talked with hundreds of readers of poetry, young and old, experienced and inexperienced, who can take the lang out of wage, or widge, I guess, language, describe what they are seeing, contours of words, letters, sentences, larger discourses, typed, drawn, shredded, photograph, collage, computer manipulated, whelped in innumerable ways on in the previously predictable two-dimensional page. These readers can also tens- testify to the disruption of their reading habits and this makes many uncomfortable so that lack of being able to be comfortable with something is 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 sometimes when you when you try to read um when you read something like a review of a typical poetry book one of the things that happens is that uh when something makes someone uncomfortable that is considered to be a negative thing Mm-hmm. But is it? I don't. I don't think it has to be in any kind of poetry. And I, I think being uncomfortable and having to consider how we read and how we take things in—it's all part of what visual poetry does. So I think the idea that this idea that uh, it's refused to be uh, visual poet practitioners have refused to be part of some critiquing history is—is is, I mean, is it a refusal or is it just that it doesn't make any sense? Hmm. You know, as like, you're as you're saying that, it reminds me a little bit of. You know, deconstruction, defamiliarization, yeah. and when you're talking about deconstructing something, which I think visual, from what I've read about visual yeah, poetry, a lot of that. it involves that a lot, right? Can, it's yeah. hard to trace back to a linear narrative because the entire practice is resisting a linear narrative. Really, it's it's resisting that sort of logical straightforwardness yeah. when you're doing the deconstruction. Remind, yeah, so I'm, I'm getting uh, bad flashbacks to uh, reading <laughs> Derrida in my master's and trying to understand what it meant. Um, <laughs> so I actually didn't, I didn't read any of the, in, in the, my, my the reading of the history, anyone mentioned Derrida, but as you're talking about the deconstructionism, it, it makes a lot of, yeah. makes a lot of sense. He talked a lot about that. Well, that, that, that's the thing. Now, now, the thing is, maybe there can be a new form of criticism where it's more like, I think what happens more with visual poetry is instead of, say, reading reviews where people say this isn't this, you know, this could be done better yeah. or when compared with this or that, it, they haven't really like they, there isn't that sort of thing. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of available um, uh, there, there's a lot of visual poetry both online, well, more, especially online and, and increasingly a bit more in print. Mm-hmm. It was more online for the longest time, for, for the last, like in in the sort of, it since maybe the aughts, we've been putting a lot of it online. And then before that, there was some printed concrete poetry, but like the, it, you know, it's we've see, we're seeing a lot more publishers doing it now. So it's like, it's getting, it's being disseminated now a lot. So um, things like anthologies where people write essays about the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a form of, of critical engagement as Absolutely, well. Yeah. So like rather than, like I was thinking about reviews and maybe that's a narrow way of looking at it. I, I think like so, there's, that, there's that famous quote about um, writing about music is like dancing about poetry. Uh, or, you know, like, or writing about art is like dancing about music. You know, I don't know, that's wrong. It's, <laughs> it makes too much sense. But you know what I mean? Writing about something is like dancing about uh, art. Or, I don't know. It's, the idea is that it's hard to write about something that's visual or something that's, sure. you know, and, and, and the whole idea of visual poetry is that you're supposed to get it from the work itself, right? So rather than sort of, I mean, some people feel that way about art as well. They don't like artistic statements and stuff. But I actually do like artistic yeah. statements. And like, for instance, there's a publisher, Tim Glassett Edition, and sometimes some of the uh, in Sweden and it's Joachim Norling who is the publisher and sometimes uh, the um, people who um, 
whose work he publishes, he's publishing a lot of visual poetry, for instance, some of them feel inclined to write an artistic statement about the work. And that's really helpful. And yeah. and also it is a way to engage with the work in a crit on a critical way, whether it's the person themselves or someone else writing about yeah. the work I, that way. I think there's a difference between a review where you're criticizing yeah, something and, crit and then... And engagement. Engagement, yeah. 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 And I think, not just the visual poetry, but I think... The past, I'm not sure how many years, but since I've been reading contemporary poetry, yeah. most of the criticism I see isn't really um, critiquing. It's because I think it's such a small community that people are more, um, I don't know, writing about things as a way to promote something and you'd be afraid to be too harsh on someone. Well, there's lots of know. reviews that still exist, but like... Do you think the reviews that or you read, are they very critical of, of the work? Or I, I don't read tons of reviews, so I, I'm you, talking yeah, about you, a small sample through, size. If you go and you read a literary journal, there's, there's usually, like ARC, for instance, has sections in the back that have reviews. Uh, are they still, are they, are reviews still as, uh, I mean, are there still negative reviews around? There are. Um, Global Mail uh, publishes uh, poetry reviews still on occasion. I think not yeah. as much as they used to. So it is kind of a falling. It's, it's not something you see as much as. But every once in a while you get these essays by people saying there should be more, um, you know, critical reviews right. and not just always positive stuff. So I guess it, I, I, I think it's still around to a certain extent. Um, I don't, yeah. I think that there's, it's just maybe not as much as it used to be. I think it's mm -hmm. true. But I mean, you still see, like, you still see um, um, reviews around that engage critically. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's not as much in the negative as it used to be. I don't know. Speaking about uh, back to the history of Vizpo, yeah. how much does history matter in how a genre is practiced or understood today? And what influence carries through to the presence of visual poetry that makes it what it is, do you think? So I think it, it, it history matters in the sense that it helps to know what has gone before. Um, and not because, oh, well, you shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel or anything like, like sometimes they say that about poetry, like a person who hasn't read a lot of poetry will write a lot of cliche poems about the moon. So, yeah. but what's a cliche visual poem? Everyone tries to lay out letters in I love you, like uh, BP Nicola. But is it, in some ways, because a lot of this work is fairly manual, it's maybe not a bad thing if they're trying to yeah. do something that already exists and, and then they discover maybe that it's already been, I mean, we, there's just so many different ways of doing things so I mean if a person it has a complete blank slate and decides to invent visual poetry I've invented this new form folks it's called visual po I don't think that would be so bad either but I do think that knowing its history and, and being able to find other examples will inspire more like okay. in, I think with anything I don't even think there's anything um any kind of art that it doesn't hurt to, uh, you know, I mean, it's always better to know more than less, I guess, I think. Do you think that there is, so let's look, looking back to some uh, influential visual poets from yeah. Canada, for example, do you think that their influence still holds today the same that um, a well-known poet's influence from non, a non-visual poet's influence would hold today? That's an interesting question. A question of degree. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, how how does one learn about visual poetry other than these days? Like, I mean, I know how oh, the I, internet, like everyone yeah. learns about everything. <laughs> well, I remember what happened. I'm trying to remember when I first started um, being exposed to it. And I think it must have been, with me, I think it must have been through, say, someone like in Ottawa, Rob McLennan, who 
uh, publishes so many chapbooks and things yeah. like that and interviews so many people. And then the connections I made through Rob, there was an online um, uh, web server um, run by an American called Dan Weber. And he basically, he would allow us uh, people to just post up their their visual poems and we'd have like we just be able to see all these different ones that's how i started to and then in canada there were people like gary barwin derek Beaulieu, and judith coppathorn whose work i had seen in both in print and online and in the case of um judith coppathorn uh the the local um person um jw curry had a lot of older printed uh chapbooks and things of hers that I had seen. So there are things like that. I think, so a lot of it's, yeah, by print, but also by connections with other people and stuff like that. So the question is, how are people finding out? Now, one thing that's changed uh, in the sort of a, a more contemporary context is that you actually do find visual poetry taught a little bit in at universities mm -hmm. now, which is something that I don't know whether it was done in the past so mm -hmm. much, maybe a little, but so for instance, there was a conference last May at the University of Ottawa called Canada Concrete, and that, that was uh, organized by the uh, Professor Stacy of the English department with the help of uh, Claire Farley, a local uh, PhD student in his program and other people. And that included a lot of visual poetry. And I met, a number of uh, students, and they also they had a project before that to pick a mm -hmm. particular visual poet, and then write about them. So that's that's a way that maybe uh, younger people are getting to know stuff. And uh, for instance, there's a um, a Toronto visual poet named Kate Siclosi, yep. and uh, she has been doing Letraset like a long, long time. She, her father would take her to Letraset auctions, which to me is fascinating. And yeah. I didn't, I mean, when she, you know, I didn't hear about visual poetry till I was in my, like, what, 30s or something like that. So, you know, I mean, I just, I mean, I guess there is more possibility for finding out about these things now than there used to be. But um, it's, I guess it's a question of, are the sort of earlier practitioners taught? People, Canadians tend to know a lot about BP Nickel. Yeah. And a lot of his, I mean, he did a lot. He did so many different things. Yeah. And my, when I first, like the, some of the stuff that BP Nickel did was like hand-drawn sort of. And mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't at the time interested in that. I didn't know, I heard of him, but I wasn't particularly interested. I was more interested in his poetry. Yeah. So I guess the more we get exposed to this stuff, the the more we learn. But do, do we... Um, in the same way that people uh, have sort of like uh, the poetry of the literary canon inculcated. Yeah. I think it, it doesn't work that way. And I also think that sort of the whole questioning of canons in general is a good idea. Like how many, um, you know, those old canons that um, they, they excluded a lot of people like yep. women and, and minorities and things like that. So it's the same with, maybe it's not a bad idea if we don't have, don't canons. have canons. Yeah. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe maybe the way we we discover, um, I mean, it's the job of of people who have the ability to disseminate. Like for instance, I through Angel House Press, yeah. I run something NationalPoetryMonth.ca and Experiment O, and those things both occur annually. This year, we're doing a special feature on acemic writing, and the reason I decided to do it because is because I know that a lot of our typical readers haven't necessarily heard of yeah. acemic writing, and 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 sometimes when they find out about it. 
well, they it's inter- like it's something different for them and something new, and they might find it interesting to find out more about it and to do it themselves. You know? I'm going to stop you right there, Amanda. I have a All quotation right. for you. Oh, a quotation. Yay. Some visual poems are very abstract, pushing us beyond representational language to the poem as thing in itself through an extreme focus on the visual elements of print and codification. Other conceptual poems defamiliarize uses of language so extensively or are so extreme in their focus that they are very difficult to make sense of in terms of traditional literary expectations. These poems tempt one to ask, how is this even poetry? Visual poems must also be considered artworks which are interested in exploring the visuality, materiality, and texture of forms and images, including print and typography, things we often overlook when we read. However, these works remain tied to aspects of linguistic representation, and this justifies calling them poetry too, even if they trouble the notion of literacy and reference that we assume when approaching literary works. And that's from a uh, CanLit guide um, website uh, uh, backgrounder that I that I read. So my question for you, and which reason why I stopped you, is because we're the into that is, subject. We are yeah. into that subject. Asemic or non-semantic writing is an abstract form of visual poetry. Are you tempted to ask, as the quotation suggests, is this even poetry? Yeah, I love that question. Every and you know what? When I hear that, it makes me happy. Like to yeah. me, like the idea of any kind of art form is to challenge the status quo. Hmm. So if the question is being asked, then it's making you think about what make what makes up poetry. And yeah. and, and if the more you ask the question, the more you learn and the more you explore and mm-hmm. the more you push boundaries. So yeah, I, I love I love that and I love asking that question. I love it when people ask the question. It's one of the reasons why I started nationalpoetrymonth.ca because I wanted people to say, in fact, more than I wanted people to say, um, is this poetry? I wanted them to say that isn't poetry, <laughs> because that's fun. And and what what is not poetry? I mean, in the in the in a year after or two years after, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature yep. for his mu- music lyrics. I think that that it, that question isn't isn't an easy answer, and I don't think it should be an easy answer. What do you like about acemic writing? I really, you know what, I liked it um, okay in the past, but okay, there's two ways, there's two aspects of it that um, you can, I can answer that question. Okay. Um, one is as someone who is just an appreciator of it. So as an appreciator of it, I like it because it's it's versatile. It can be done manually or digitally. It takes its cue from a variety of sources. So for instance, it takes its cue from nature. So clouds, wind on water, grass patterns, bird formations. It has a long history. Like I, there's an article I read that talked about um, practitioners from the Tang dynasty and things like that. It also combines a lot of interesting things like uh, runic uh, forms and uh, made up alphabets. Okay. It's just it's it's so from that point of view it's just it's just very it's it's a, a combination of both tradition and innovation and of the handmade and the and the non-handmade. So it can be can be a lot of different things and the natural aspect from the and also it from the point of view of creating it, I've started to, I was trying to do some stuff digitally with, with the scenic writing before, and I wasn't very satisfied with when I tried to do it. But when I, I just, I found this year, I've been, um, it's it's been a tough year, and I finding it a little hard to write, and mm. to write things that I care about, and that make sense to me. So I started to work with paint, a lot and color and that really helped me a lot and then I started to write these weird 
codes, like these weird little symbols that have no actual meaning. And I guess they are acemic writing in the sense that they are, they are, um, they have no, they are, they are, um, wordless writing. Now, the question of whether or not something has meaning, that we're going to get to that later, I know, yes. but but the, the idea of, of meaning, it could also be emotional meaning too. So, mm -hmm. so I think for me, I found myself feeling that it was a cathartic practice and the practice of doing this physically helped me as well. Okay. And even the materiality of it was quite interesting. And when I, I mean, there's a lot of variety of styles for acemic writing and I like the fact that it, it's a question. It's it's another aspect. It's kind of another. It's a sub sub genre because it's part of visual poetry, which is right. part of a mix of kind of poetry and, and art, art yeah. and things like that. So again, it, I like the fact that it is such an outsider practice too, and that you don't really see it in a lot of um, places that you know, like sort of mainstream sort of places. One of the first. Um, things uh, that that really inspired me was uh um this um contemporary of um William S Burroughs Brian Geisen did something called calligraphy of fire which is just these giant panels orange uh graffiti uh calligraphy but it's not it's not in any language that uh, anyone really knows and then there are people who work in um alien languages and stuff like that. It has a lot of scope for the imagination. Do you think that if a seem because a lot of the things you're mentioning that are enjoyable about it are sort of its countercultural components, yeah. which we'll talk about in a bit as well. Yeah. Do you think if it was more mainstream, if that became like one of the main poetry genres, let's say, do you think it would lose some of that um, specialness? <laughs> yeah. Or just that, that connection you have to it? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I mean, if you suddenly saw a semic writing in Vogue magazine or so, or Oprah or something, <clears throat> if it was an Oprah Book of the Month Club, yeah. you know, or something, would it suddenly become more? If it became trendy, I, I, I it might lose some people um, who who maybe like to be part of an outside uh, group. Maybe I, I don't know. I mean. I mean, it's like with poetry. I mean, some people are very critical of uh, Rupi Kaur for her oh, yeah. work on with uh, Instagram poetry. And I, I mean, I think it's kind of pretentious to, um, for me, it would be, I would feel, I, if, if I like doing something, I like doing something, whether it's part of whatever, I, I don't want to consider that. But I mean, yeah. it's true that I do get a kind of, a, there is a certain charm to making something that I know isn't going to be, popular i mean there is a there is a kind of a there is a sort of a, a prestige in a way to yeah. doing something that isn't popular but that's a, that seems very ego driven to me and i'd like i'd like to just serve the work rather than care about um that and and, and besides maybe it would get funding then and that wouldn't be a bad thing there are people <laughs> who could really use yeah, the money for it. so yeah so i mean i can sort of see again i'm being a libra and, and just like seeing both sides of everything do you mind if you want to take a short break, Amanda, and I will uh, blow my nose? Okay, we, we don't want to hear that, so we'll, <laughs> let's have a break. Okay, see you after the break. And we're back. Um, that was our break. Um, I hope you enjoyed the all the ads that Amanda found for us. And That's we're right. getting lots of money now with our sponsors. <laughs> um, and then I thought we would come back and talk about uh, meaning, which is something that we've sort of talked a little bit about in these questions leading up to this question. So as with some of the earlier ones, I'm going to start with a quotation, but this time the quotation is from Amanda herself. This is something that always frustrates me with the way some people read poetry looking for surface meaning. I've never given a rat's ass about that. Do you like my Amanda impersonation? That was good. That sounded just like me. You could be me. That's it. 
I'm always looking for a combination of senses and emotions to be evoked by whatever I'm creating or absorbing as a reader, viewer, listener, etc. When I work on visual poems, I'll often play music and let the various combinations of notes, instruments, melodies, etc. help me to create the piece. To me, the beauty and excitement of visual poetry is that it isn't hemmed in by expectations of a specific form in the way that other linear forms of poetry are. How viewers choose to interpret or read the visual poem is really up to them rather than prescribed by some external authority. I always hope that whatever I do will inspire someone else to create something in that form or another form. I believe in sharing what one produces in order that others can derive inspiration from it. And that's from a Jacket 2 um, commentary. This, uh, Gary Barwin interviewed me right. uh, for a, a, a special feature. It's called What Kind of Sixth Sense Is That? I think. So and my question is that uh, I imagine that one familiar critique of his Poe is that it doesn't mean anything, which we've talked a little bit about. In this quotation, you offer a more laissez-faire approach to meaning or really a disinterest in the topic. But Vispo or your interactions with it must be meaningful to you because you continue to be involved with it. So what meaning do you personally derive from it? Okay. So uh, first of all, I'd like to look at the uh, my my, my uh, Webster's Ninth New Collegiate <laughs> Dictionary yeah. definitions of One meaning. Of the many books you got out. Of and me meaningful. Okay. So meaning we have the basic one, the thing one intends to convey, especially by language. Okay. Then we have the thing that is conveyed, especially by language, and then we have something meant or intended, and then we have a significant quality. And then we have the logical connotation of a word or phrase and the logical denotation of, or extension of a word. And I think a lot of times when people say meaning, they, they are looking at logical connotation and, the, yeah. and denotation, and they're also looking at significance. And that's a quality question. Right. Those are very general definitions. Well, right? that's, that's good. And we'll get into it. So meaningful, having meaning or purpose. So full of, so significant. And the word significant is important. So meaningful to me meanings ha means uh, the idea of having a purpose. So for me, the purpose of what I do is to play. That's the purpose of what I do with visual poetry. If I'm not having fun and I'm not playing, I really, I'm not interested in, in doing almost anything these days because life is a big drag as it is. So, Significant so, is an interesting word to talk about because of, is, I'm, I'm guessing it's the same root as like signifier, right? Which yeah, to so me is signify a lot about something. Meaning. Yeah, it's like a, a symbol or a... Yeah. Or uh, something, so or something else. Yeah, exactly. Signified yeah. and, and... I read my saucure. Me too. <laughs> Yeah, so and, and so along those lines, what I'd like to do is read a poem by an Eastern European writer and, and a little bit of an interview that he did, too, called uh, Against Meaning. It's by Andre Kodrescu. Everything I do is against meaning. That is partly deliberate, mostly spontaneous. Wherever I am, I think I'm somewhere else. This is partly to confuse the police, mostly to avoid myself, especially when I have to confirm the obvious, which always sits on a little table and draws a lot of attention to itself. So much so that no one sees the chairs and the girls sitting on one of them. With the obvious, one is always at the movies. The other obvious, which the loud obvious conceals, is not obvious enough to merit a surrender of the will. But through a little hole in the boring report, God watches us faking it. Hmm. And then from this little, um, this, um, so he did an interview um, with um, Lydia Vianu, and I really like this. She, she asked him about, um, um, about his, um, 
about this meaning thing. She says, in Against Meaning, you write, everything I do is against meaning. This is partly deliberate, mostly spontaneous. Your poetry is indeed a crusade against meanings, a search for the grail of the absolute fresh meaning. You fight language to the least automatism and mock at comfortable statements. You are a highly uncomfortable poet from the point of view of inert readers who expect to be pleased, not challenged. This fight against a piece of reading is desperado again. Would you say you are at war just with language or is it a vaster battle against mentality human nature that you initiate. And he says, the only solution for inert readers is to be dipped in saline solution and connected to electrical wires. If that doesn't work, they should lose their reader status and be made to work the copy machine. Meaning is an arrogant claim of power. Authoritarian structures cannot function without fixed meanings. They draw occult power from them. Unsettled meaning, knocking it off, Unsettling meaning, knocking it off its ritual purchase, is the highest calling of a creative language user. Language is a battlefield. It is littered with the corpses of words killed by ideologies, strangled to death by advertising, assassinated by political opportunists, drowned in the urine of bureaucratic sadists. On this field, poets have the very big job of rendering the killers of words inefficient through paradox, irony, erudition, and sound. At the same time, they must save the still living words from the intensifying hunt for them by the purveyors of content, who are sometimes the same as the assassins above. The battlefield of language is also the battlefield of mentalities, or human nature, as you call it. Human nature is generally used as a synonym for stupidity. In that sense, yes, human nature is definitely to be overthrown. And I think this holds very true for visual poetry. Visual poetry um, is a response against that attempt by authorities to impose an ideology. So I think it's, and right now it's especially important. Like a lot of times in the 60s, you would see visual poems that were basically working with slogans and using kind of the same form in newspapers. So yeah, I I think it's important to work against um, authoritative meaning and we're fixed expressions and linearity. And yeah, so that's that's my answer to all that. (laughs) So... (laughs) That, I think that quotation is suggesting that the idea of meaning is even pretentious. We're assuming that we need to have meaning in poetry or that poetry is meaningful in some sort of objective sense. Well, this is why I brought up the, the sort of very general definition of meaningful. I think that, uh, I, I think especially today, one of the things that I worry about is this utilitarian attitude about things to do with art and any kind of creative act. I like the idea, you know, I, I want to say that the reason, I, I mean, aside from this idea of, of, of um, butting against, uh, of, of of, of critiquing the idea of an authoritative meaning. The other thing is, I just do this stuff because I like to play. Mm-hmm. And I, there's nothing wrong with wanting to play. But it's seen, wanting to play is seen as trivial, and it's not yeah. important. But I, th- I think it is. Jung, uh, in his Red Book, was saying, he wrote that it's important to return to a childlike sense of play. I mean, it's good for your imagination. You know, it, it's, it's a good idea. So yeah. what if all I'm doing is playing? I, I, right now, I feel like that's, that's all I'm doing with my visual poetry. I'm not even trying. And if someone else is just playing and trying things out, that can lead to all kinds of interesting things. And I yeah. also think that if if we're going to be real existential yeah. about it, um, <laughs> you could argue very easily, I think, that play is the ultimate meaning. Well, there you go. Uh, but because you're talking about what you're talking about, I'm going to skip ahead and I'll yeah. come back to the other ones, but I'm going to talk right. about these pol- political sort of questions because you're oh, yeah, talking okay. about that. So I'll start with a couple quotes again. Concrete poetry has always been a good place for political expression. 
Henri Chopin uses his typewriter and coffee cup stains to tell us how he feels about Mr. Bush, while the three Turkish poets featured in the book, um, I guess, I'm guessing the book that they're talking about here, right. are open to about their need for visual poetry to express their political ideals and thoughts. Sirkin Eisen writes in his, on his website, Zinhar, that poetry is a mechanism that allows us to produce anti-codes to help us intervene against the codes that are imposed on us by the city life. Jörg Piringer's work, Fallen, takes the English translation of the Communist Manifesto and lets the text fall into a pile at the bottom of the page, making it unreadable, stripped of its original meaning. That sounds kind of neat. It does. So that's from the 20 Things You Must Know About Concrete and Visual Yeah, that poetry. was a good little piece. Yes. Yeah. Really. And then another quote I have um, is from something that you curated uh, by Big Brick Books, and this quote is by Eric Schmaltz. Right. Anarchism, by its very nature, aims to replace structures of domination with forms of liberty, which is why visual poetry, and the very act of manufacturing visual poetry, illustrates a kind of literary act of anarchism. Visual poetry aims to sabotage language erroneousness. Visual poetry aims to disrupt language binality. Visual poetry aims to liberate both the author and reader from linguistic repression. Repression. In visual poetry, there is nothing to read. There are no grammatical errors to hinder or confuse. There are no structural rules to control and to restrict. Instead, the reader remains free and unbounded. Only the visual act of observation facilitates in the interpretation of the image's meaning. So I think uh, Eric would agree with some some aspects of one of the yeah. quotations that you uh, read earlier. Do you think there is something inherently political or marginalized about Vispo in the Canadian poetry or in the poetry canon or in literary expression more generally? Well, I think in visual poetry, as I said, gatekeeping is is uh, is minimal. There are no Vispo contests or awards. Rarely do people receive financial support for visual poetry. It tends to be a grassroots type of art, so it's a, out, such an outsider art, and its requirements aren't political. It's often, it can be a response to um, the politics of the day, though there are lots of different, especially there's lots of different um, variations of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think it's inherently political with with its the form, or is it just that it is a um, currently marginalized or um, just not popular form of poetry, which 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 just allows it to, uh, which facilitates a political expression in it? It's like a chicken egg question, right? <laughs> in some sense, is it? Right? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. Well, because if it's if it's inher if it's if it's inherently if it's the form because it's not a linear form, then mm if it's not popular then it's not going to get support yeah. uh, and if it doesn't get support does it encourage people to turn away from a more popular conventional form you know so like i mean i think i think there's a bit of both why do people i mean it would be interesting to hear why other people um are doing visual poetry i mean with me i just kind of fell into it um and we'll talk about things yeah. like that later but um i mean i I don't know why, like someone like, for instance, Derek Bolia, whose Letraset work, for instance, uh, he has, for instance, been very critical of uh, a lot of traditional poetry. He's written a lot about uh, of, of of criticism against um, against it. So for him, I, I wouldn't put words in his mouth, but I suspect that working using the stuff that he's done, he's also an, a, a professor and mm -hmm. works in that field too. So I think he is resisting against, uh, say, the poetry canon, for example. Mm -hmm. And I, but the thing is, I mean, a lot, some of us work in work in, we also work like, as I also write poetry, I try to get grants, I which I do sometimes get I, I, I run my, like poetry public 
publications, uh, both online and I have read, done some in print. I've been an editor. So I'm also part of the system as yeah. well. So how do those things go together? That's a good question. My, my <laughs> attitude is this. I do whatever I need to serve the work. So it's not about my own. It really is less about my own particular philosophies than it is about what the work needs. I once spent three months learning how to write sonnets because there was a particular piece of work I needed to. Right. It drove me insane. I have to say I went insane. But the point is, but visual poetry is something I have been doing for since 2007. So it's like, what, 12, it's more than a decade now. It's like 12 mm. years. So obviously there's, and I'm still doing it. I haven't stopped. And I've, I've, in fact, I've, in some ways I've gotten more into it. So it's something that still um, works for me on the level of, of um, a practice that seems worthwhile and meaningful. And uh, as something that uh, satisfies that frustration I have with uh, syntax, regular syntax and fixed expressions and, and right. meanings. When you say you serve the work, you're still yeah. at some point making that decision uh, to ex express yourself or express something with visual poetry, right? So do you think that there in that decision itself, there is an inherently, it's a inherently political act? because it is a marginalized form of poetry? Or do you think it's just, it's not really, there's no real association between a political act and No, I writing? think it is. I, I think it is a resistance to the status quo. But mm -hmm. I think that about everything that I try to do as far as that create, creative stuff, I'm always trying to, I'm always responding to a feeling of being trapped, a claustrophobic feeling mm. of being trapped by convention. I don't even like to spell the word holidays the way it's spelled. I spell holidays H-O-L-I-D-A-Z-E. Mm. I mean, I feel that way about a lot of things, more so as I'm reaching, as I'm in my grumpy menopausal As you 50s. reach senility. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the time that comes, I'll be shouting if, if I manage to get there. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that my, my, my creative response is always a political act because I'm responding to a the world is absurd. There's violence, um, pain, and suffering, and poverty, and all of that going on. And I think that that any kind of creative expression that uh, is tends to be an act uh, with that in mind and and against that sort of and in response to those things, you know, and the automaton nature of nine to five jobs and the white picket fence. Although, I was listening to our interview with Dalton Dirksen or my interview with Dalton oh, yeah. Dirksen back in the early days of the podcast, and he said uh, the white picket fence is an easy target. He's right, so that's yeah. an interesting point too. But yeah, I think for me, any creative act is an act of resistance against the status quo and against. Um, easy thinking because it's not easy right you have to think and work and so including visual poetry um and is visual poetry more more political for me than than writing text uh other forms i don't think it's more i don't think there's it's more or less i think it's just it's just another way A different type yeah okay yeah so again a couple quotes poetry or any writing at all is about communication Claus Oldenburg has said the image is the most complete technique of all communication. We tend to forget is that words, when written, and the letters that make them up are in fact images. So what can we do with these images to add to the communicative resonance of their meanings? That quote is from K.S. Ernst from Cold Front Magazine's, um, one of their posts on singular vispo first encounters. Another quotation from a different um, part of that same series. 
Uh, and this one is a quote from Mary Ellen Salt's Words and Spaces, as quoted by you. I quoted, yeah. <laughs> Concrete poetry asks us to look at the word. At its aesthetic properties as a composition of letters, each of which is a beautiful object in its own right. Concrete poetry asks us to contemplate the relationship of words to each other and the space they occupy. We must be prepared to contemplate poems as constellations of words, as ideograms, as word pictures, as permutational systems. By discovering the meaning of the poem as it emerges from the method of its composition, the reader becomes in some sense the poet. I really like that quote. Yeah, it's beautiful. And one more from the same series. Um, this is Connie Tettenborn on Derek Beaulieu's, we're talking about Derek Beaulieu's frog plop poem. I realized that there was considerable power in the placement of a word in relation to another and in the size and orientation of the letters. So I put those quotes in to sort of set up this question. Yeah. What is unique about the way in which vis- visual poetry communicates? Amanda? I, I think one of the differences is it communicates all at once. So rather than bit by bit, you have to see the whole first and then you can start to parse, if it is even parsable, to get a feeling from it, some kind of joy or or confusion or disorientation. Do you think it's more holistic than other forms of poetry? Is that what holistic means? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't I, know what holistic holistic. means. Holistic. Holistic. Whole, WH. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, yeah. And, and the thing is, like, um, there's a lot of like, I mean, there's it's kind of a binary thing to say there's visual poetry and then there's the other stuff. But right. I mean, you see a lot. There's, there's border yeah. blur, we'll say. There's border blur. Like, like you see a lot of people who use a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of spaces within their poems to create space for the breath or the pause or so. So um, even that is a form of, of attempting to communicate based on form. And I think that's yeah. the form as a, as a method of communication is, is something that visual poetry does, but it can be done in other, other forms of uh, poetry as well. Certainly do, done a lot in art. Well, if you're saying then that like spaces or punctuation communicates mm. things like a breath, yeah. so then one could argue that prose poetry could be visual poetry because Absolutely. it would still have grammar and punctuation. But yeah. I think we can at least, I would, I would suggest that there is an obvious difference. Between, that difference is we can we can argue, but there's a difference between what we would consider we're talking about as visual yeah. poetry and yeah, the sure. sentence. The pro, and yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I think I think when we when you're when you with the differences with prose poetry or with with you know, standard poetry stanza based or whatever mm-hmm. is that you can you can usually read a word one after the other and it can it can you can do that. Whereas with the with the visual poem. You usually, I mean, you can sometimes. There are poems like "I Love You," like B.P. Nichols, I love, where you can. I mean, but in general, the form is the most important part okay. of the. I think it, it's paramount part. The form is paramount. And they don't even like sometimes a visual poem. I'm going to show you, uh, um, and you can for the listeners at home. I'm showing Aaron a little uh, spiral-bound uh, book called Ka- uh, by Catherine Vidler called Lost Sonnets, and it was published by Tim Glassett Editions in. 2018 and uh, let me just find something that's easily now I should find some color in here because it would be easier for you to see over there so are these visual poems you're asking me yeah they're totally I'm showing him a collection of of squares that are all jumbled up rectangles that are all jumbled up together and if are you were to put a gun to my head and say, what is that? <laughs> I would say that's visual art. <laughs> visual art. So there yeah. you go. See, there's, that's another question. What's the difference between visual art and visual poems? Okay, so so that's the, these are the questions. If you use symbols, are vi- like if, if you just use uh, um, 
thing if you just use grammatical things like a a, a comma or a question mark or the, those diacritics are they are they visual poems you know i mean the point is does it have to be text-based for it to be a visual poem and can visual art also be visual poetry like it's just i think these are interesting questions and it go why am i bringing this up oh because that's what our listeners are all what's, wondering what's the no because <laughs> we're talking kidding. about what's yeah, what's know. the difference be, between what's the difference how does a visual poem differ from other forms yes. in its method of communication yes, and, exactly and i say at least i would say that it communicates all at once and that okay. you don't really have to parse things it does it have to include words or not i'm not sure that it does does it have to include the alphabet like a lot of times when i started out doing visual poetry i was most mostly working with individual letters and combining them and coloring them and stuff like that but now i work with whole lines of stuff and text and so i think what you what you said earlier what resonated with me is that the the form mm -hmm. or how something looks i would even say is paramount it's there's an attention to the visual qualities and the attention to the visual qualities is an important part of i wouldn't even necessarily say the most important part but, but it's it highly is, important it is highly important yeah. whereas if i'm going to write uh sentences uh, not in a be, block yeah. like that is not necessarily what i'm thinking of. i'd be thinking of sound i'd be thinking of meaning quote unquote yeah. but break not... you might be thinking of the word where to break yeah exactly yeah. but i'm not thinking of the image or the picture that it vis is being visually no. presented on on the page or on uh, that's it uh, in the physical object yeah no that makes sense to me i mean it, and even to the extent that you might think that might be the job of the designer or editor to decide on not to say take it into it may turn it into a visual poem but at least its placement on the page the spacing above and below sometimes the poet works in conjunction with the editor yeah. for that but sometimes the editor the designer makes those decisions i wonder if the designer is creating visual poetry maybe maybe <laughs> and then you know there are also pattern poems which you have like george herbert's eastern easter wings like the poems in the shape of things that they typify and things like that and a lot of people for a lot of people pattern poems are what visual poetry is like a lot of magazines like uh, publish pattern poems, uh, you know, like poem in the shape of a star or something, and it talks about a star in the poem, right? That's that's another form. It's like a hybrid too. So I've got another couple quotations for you. Okay. Um, this is from Kenneth, Kenneth Goldsmith from The New Concrete. He says that the Noir Gallandres group set out to change literature by creating a universal picture language, a poetry that can be read by all, regardless of what language they spoke. Letters would double as carriers of semantic content and as powerful visual elements in their own right. And I have another quote here. Uh, this is this is you uh, in, your, in your brick book, Celebration of Canadian Visual Poetry. The bastard child of art and poetry, visual poetry won't get you laid. Alas. A, a misfit relative, neither muggle nor magic, art brut nor horror vacui it doesn't fit into standard mainstream categories it's seldom published in book form and it's a rare feature in literary magazines one of the reasons i'm smitten with visual poetry is its lack of boundaries including geography and language visual poets collaborate and exchange work with each other throughout the world while they may sometimes have to rely on google translate to communicate with one another their work suffers from no communication barriers note that canadian visual poets have been influenced not by just fellow canadians but also by artists throughout the world. What appeals to me most with visual poetry is that it offers its creators and enthusiasts spark for the imagination. I feel like and I'm you, pretty consistent. You are, actually. <laughs> That's good. And you talked uh, earlier about uh, a yeah. project you're doing with um, people in the UK or Scotland mm -hmm. or something like that, mm -hmm. where you're, you're mailing things. So 
Oh, actually, I have a real question on this. Somewhere. That's oh, right. here we go. It's so on the back. You write in this quotation that BizPo allows you to communicate with people across the world. Do you think there's an opportunity in BizPo to bypass some of the linguistic communication boundaries and create a sense of togetherness? I feel like I should be singing a Beatles song. Now. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, because visual poets don't require visual visual poetry doesn't require reading of a particular in a particular language. The work is accessible to all oh, yeah. in a lot of senses. Um, it's primarily disseminated online, with some printed dissemination being secondary. So we, I, I, for instance, on Facebook, there's a community of visual poets. There's different groups for acemic writing and mail art and different things, and they come together to can collaborate and produce material. So yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's by I think that not having those linguistic barriers. Um, makes it possible for more collaboration. I just got an e email from one of the contributors to nationalpoetrymonth.ca. He's been writing to me in Italian. I sort of understand a little bit of what he's writing, but I, I've, I've got the image. I've got all the I, I, the bio I had to have him put in English and stuff like that. But I mean, we've been communicating back and forth. I asked him what the medium was. He gave it to me and I just, I did, I had to do Google Translate to get mm -hmm. ink on, on paper. But I mean, I sort of got the idea. But, but really it's the work that the collaboration is in the work. And and being able to include, I think it's a very inclusive um, discipline or a bunch of disciplines because the 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 images are 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 what communicate rather than you know the the language. language. Yeah, it is it it's it's it it encompasses many different languages. Is there something particular about this moment in history that makes this connection especially pertinent? Yes, well, where certain um, ogres in the House of White are planning on building walls, this is another way of, of, of uh, breaking down barriers and, and ensuring that people realize that, um, I mean, to collaborate with people of different cultures, for instance, is mm -hmm. a neat thing. And, you know, we art has, I think, has, uh, is in general uh, pretty transcendent of uh, the sort of barriers and boundaries and ignorance and stuff like that. So, yeah, I could be idealistic and say, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> opportunity to connect yeah well amanda i think i would like to leave it there and i think perhaps on we'll, we'll meet up again and have another episode where i talk to you about your work is that is that okay with you you look you look like no it's fine face. it's fine i'm just looking at our time it's like okay sounds yeah. good. okay so thanks everyone for listening to um our discussion on visual poetry please tune into the next episode where i'm going to ask amanda specifically about uh her work because she is written or written as you say written composed I, I just say i make you I make she has made a lot of uh visual poetry some so. people say written though and we will talk about that next time all right thanks for joining us thanks amanda thank you Aaron. thanks for the great questions all right bye-bye small machine talks with amanda earl and am kozak